Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Well, good morning once again. Uh, I want to speak to you on the subject from Acts chapter 16, starting in verse 11, the subject of when God opens a door, when God opens a door. Last week, we saw Paul and the mission team sort of looking for the open door, right? And all they were getting, it seemed, were blocked doors. And after four to 500 miles of walking around and seeing blocked doors, God shows them where the open door is through the vision of the man from Macedonia, this, this Macedonian call. And they conclude in verse 10, hey, if God gave Paul a vision of a man from Macedonia, maybe we're supposed to go to Macedonia. I mean, that's pretty good deductive reasoning. And, and today we see that when God confirms his direction and opens a door, that the mission of God faces opposition, but Jesus wins. That's good news, right? Jesus wins. He rescues people from a wide range of backgrounds, starts a church there in Macedonia, and makes them one in him, despite uh, Satan's desire to upset that and not allow it to happen. So we're going we're gonna to see today what happens when God opens a door in Acts 16, and uh, we're going to pray, and then we'll dive into this text together. Would you bow with me? God, we thank you for the privilege of knowing Christ, who has been revealed in the Scriptures. God, we thank you that not just to know Christ, but to know how to follow Him has been revealed in your Word. To, to know what to expect has been revealed in your Word. And, and God, we, we pray that as we continue in the book of Acts, as we continue to see your church grow and the, the mission uh, explode across the globe, God, your kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven, Lord, that you would help us to apply ourselves to this text today in the, in the ways that we need to do so, that we would be more like Christ and more effective uh, in championing the glory of our Savior to the ends of the earth. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 11 uh, of chapter 16, and we'll, we'll go down through verse 15 to start. i got preview of coming attractions, four points, all right? So, so hang with me. We're going to get all the way to verse 40 this morning. But first, down through verse 15. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. The first thing I want us to see is that we can expect the Lord Jesus to lead us to share the gospel and to work through our witness to open hearts and rescue sinners. When God opens a door, he's doing so to the end that the gospel would be shared and that people would be saved. 
he, he doesn't just open doors for no reason, right? That he opens gospel doors. In, in verse 11, the time of blocked doors is over. They've endured a lot of blocked doors, four to 500 miles of blocked doors. And now that the door is open, the team doesn't waste any time. They don't get a vision and they're like, well, what should we do about that? They're like, no, let's go, right? And they take the direct route across the northern Aegean Sea to the little island of Samothrace. And then the next day, they make their way to Neapolis, a coastal city that was the port city for that area, including the port city for Philippi. And Philippi is called a leading city of what we should really be translated that district of Macedonia. There's, there's many districts in that area, and this is a leading city in that district of Macedonia. So Philippi is not a capital city, but it's a leading city. And it's, it's situated, as Peterson tells us, on the main east-west route across Macedonia, connecting Rome with its eastern provinces. If you're trying to visualize where Macedonia is, it's like eastern Greece, okay? The gospel is, is getting to Europe for the very first time. And Paul's strategy here and really throughout his missionary trips, you'll see his strategy is to get the gospel to take root in leading cities and then let it spread from those cities. So where does Paul go? He gets to Philippi. He gets to the leading city of the area, believing that if they can get the gospel to settle down there, then people will naturally flow out of the city with the gospel. So in verse 12, they remained in this city some days, meaning for a good while. But Paul remains committed to reaching Jews first and then God-fearing Gentiles. So where does he go on the Sabbath day? They don't have a synagogue because there are fewer than 10 Jewish men in the city. So in those places where there was not a synagogue, Jews would gather by the riverside on the Sabbath to pray. So where does Paul go? He goes down to the river where there will be Jews and Gentile God-fearers gathered for prayer. He supposes, and he supposes rightly because there's some women there. And in this case, though Paul's vision had been of a man from Macedonia, the first person to trust Christ in Europe is a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. Now, here's what's interesting. Thyatira is from Asia. Now, Paul had been blocked from taking the gospel to Asia, and now in Philippi, in Europe, the first person to hear the gospel and repent and believe the gospel is actually from Asia. Y'all with me? Does God know what he's doing? Always. So you've got this businesswoman who's connected with Thyatira, which is the the hub of the purple dye trade, but she's now in Philippi, but she would have been migrating back and forth between these destinations. And guess what? The gospel is going to get to Asia eventually, but first God knew it had to go to Philippi where he would open the heart of Lydia. Uh, We can learn something from this, this text, right? Go to where people might be interested in what you have to say. Where where does Paul start? He starts where people are going to be gathered for prayer. And because the mission team looked for an interested crowd and they presented the gospel, Lydia moves from selling royal garments. Purple was associated with the, the wealthy and the royal. She moves from selling royal garments to, in a moment, being clothed with the righteousness of Jesus The entire team, you see it there, is initially involved in sharing the gospel, but at some point, the conversation reaches a climax, and Paul takes the lead. In verse 14, we read, 
the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Don't, don't miss that. Paul speaks, Lydia listens, and God saves. Paul speaks, Lydia listens, and God saves. God is the one who opens her heart to pay attention to what was said. To open the heart means to enable someone to be receptive to the spiritual realities communicated in the gospel. Have you ever tried to share the gospel with a group of people and there are some, their eyes are just like glassed over, like whatever. And then there's one inexplicably, or maybe two, and they're like leaning in, and they're processing every word. And it's like, how is the same message from the same person being processed by this one so clearly, so convincedly, so compellingly, and then everybody else is like checked out. Yeah, whatever the gospel, who cares? Well, Lydia was not checked out. She was checked in. And the reason she was checked in, the Bible tells us, is because God opened her heart to perceive the spiritual realities in the gospel. He opened her heart to pay attention, verse 14, to the gospel being shared. The words pay attention here mean to apply ourselves to something. It's not enough to just hear the gospel. You have to apply yourself to the gospel to recognize it's speaking to you. It's not this abstract story out there. It's about you. It's about your sin. It's about your condition apart from Christ. It's that Jesus came down on a rescue mission to do for you what you could not do for yourself. And when you apply yourself to that message, and when God opens your heart to receive it, and you repent and believe, you're changed. That's what happens in Lydia's life. We know she's saved because she's not only baptized, but she leads her entire household to Christ. She commands then and urges the mission team to stay at her home. She says, look, if you found me to be faithful, if you think I'm a real believer, don't leave. Stay here. There's more for us to know. We don't want to just get saved. We don't want to just check a box on a church card and say I got saved and then never have Christian community. We want to know what it's like to follow Jesus. So stay right here and help us figure that out. This is a picture of somebody who's really gotten saved, by the way. All right, they didn't walk an aisle, sign a, pr- sign a card, pray a prayer, just get wet. She got wet. She got her whole family to hear the gospel. Her whole family then got wet. Not just wet, baptized, right? Trusting in Jesus. They're, they're signifying their trust in Jesus through the symbol of baptism. And then she has this emerging church right there in her home to be discipled by this mission team. They want to know how do we follow this king in whom we've trusted. Let's keep reading. God is is working. When he opens a door, he opens hearts to the gospel. Verse 16, and we'll go down through verse 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave them orders to beat them with rods. 
And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The next thing I want you to see, church, is this. We can expect satanic forces to try and co-opt or cancel the gospel message. When the gospel takes root in a city, in a neighborhood, in a community, the next thing you can expect to happen is Satan to show up and try to shut it down. And he'll try different ways to try and shut it down. The first first strategy is just like to make the gospel not really the way to be saved, but just a way to be saved. Now before I get there, I want to point out first the, the broadness of the impact of the gospel. After we see the conversion of a businesswoman from Asia. Now we see the deliverance of a poor Greek slave girl. Did you know the gospel's for rich and poor and in between? That's good news, is it not? Luke wants us to see, as Stott writes, how God breaks down dividing barriers and can unite in Christ people of very different kinds. This slave girl is doubly a slave. What does it mean to be a slave? It means to be owned by someone or something or to be possessed by someone or something. She's possessed by a spirit of divination, literally a spirit of a python. And she is owned by men who profit from her spirit of divination. So she's possessed and she's possessed. Y'all get it? She's a double slave. As Marita writes, according to mythology, the python guarded the temple of Apollo. Over time, the word python came to mean a demon-possessed person through whom the the python of the pantheon of gods was speaking. Y'all with me? So she's demon-possessed, she's possessed of a python, and King Jesus, who is going to crush the head of the serpent, is getting ready to crush the head of the serpent. I love that. For many days, verse 18, the mission team tolerates this girl. She follows them around saying, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now what's interesting when we read this statement is we're likely to think, well, she's telling the truth. She's not wrong. And in a sense, she's not wrong, right? But she's probably not referring to the Most High God of the Bible, but rather to Zeus, the greatest of the pantheon of Greek gods. Furthermore, the English translation of verse 17 is quite poor. She's not saying that the missionaries are proclaiming the way, the way of salvation, but rather a way of salvation. In other words, here's what Satan is doing. He's trying to combat the missionaries' message of the exclusive gospel by just making it one message of salvation among many. Did you know that still happens today? People want to co-opt Jesus and dilute Jesus and say he's not really God. He's just a good guy. Follow his example. That's what Mormonism is. Jesus was a good guy, follow his example. It's what Jehovah's Witness is. Jesus was a good guy, follow his example. And they all want to represent themselves as a version or a brand of Christianity, and they are totally bankrupt. Because if Jesus isn't God, he isn't qualified to give you what is God's, therefore salvation can't be by grace. If if salvation isn't what God did for you and gave to you, it's no longer by grace. It's just me trying to be as good as I can and get to God on my terms. No matter what you call it, it's not Christianity. And what they're trying to do is just make the gospel another message among many messages and dilute it. Satan knows that if we say that the gospel is just a gospel, that we have no gospel. So, 
Paul in verse 18 finally gets annoyed. I, I don't know why it took him so long, but he becomes greatly annoyed. Did you know it's, as Christians, you can be annoyed sometimes? Like, stuff happens that's annoying, especially when the gospel is, comes under assault, when people try to attack the work of God in your midst. It's annoying! Paul was annoyed. And he simultaneously turns and speaks to the Spirit, and he speaks not in his authority, right, but in the name of Jesus Christ. He commands the Spirit to, co to come out of the slave girl. And in that very hour, which is just a, a phrase that means immediately, right then, the Spirit departs, and a slave girl is now triply freed. She's a double slave, but she's, she's triply freed. She's, she's freed from the Spirit She's freed from being owned by her masters because her masters don't have any use for her. And though it's not specifically stated in the text, she is likely freed from sin and death through saving faith in Jesus as well. I think that Luke is wanting to imply for us that this girl ends up being a part of the church in Philippi. So, Satan couldn't get the missionaries to preach the gospel as a gospel, so what is his next strategy? If he can't co-opt the gospel then he will try to cancel the gospel by coming after the missionaries themselves. In verse 19, what do the owners do when the slave girl is delivered from this spirit? Do they, do they rejoice that she's free? No. They're upset. They're upset that they can no longer profit from the girl's problem. Did you know that the world system likes you to be enslaved so it can profit from your problems? The world system wants people enslaved to darkness so that they can use people for their own profit. You say, well, that's, that's a little extreme, is it? Well, what would happen in this community if God really brought revival to the Roanoke Valley? Entire industries would be, would be faltering in our country, would they not? The things that people look at on the internet, they'd no longer look at them. Entire industries would fall apart, bars would be empty, prisons would no longer need to be constructed, and churches would be filled. I long for that day. You see, when people are set free, not everybody's happy about it. The girl's owners drag Paul and Silas to the center of the city, and they are charged with what? Do they charge them with helping somebody? Hey, this girl was demon-possessed, and they helped her out. No, that's not what they, they don't state the facts of the case, right? They don't talk about the fact that they just lost their profit because this girl has been healed and delivered and freed. Instead, what do they say? They're, they're Jewish, and they're a little strange. They've disturbed our city, and they've advocated customs that aren't lawful for us as Romans to accept or to practice. These men never mention that when the Spirit left, their hope of profit was gone. Instead, they argue these men are outsiders. They, they present a way of life that's anti-Roman. Paul and Silas are Jews after all, and while it's acceptable to be a Jew in Roman territory, it is only acceptable so long as you play the Roman game. Paul and Silas know the one true God. They deliver a girl from demonic forces, and instead of being celebrated, they are accused of disturbing the city and introducing unlawful customs. Did you know this is happening in our own country today to Christians? If you affirm 
God's design of men and women. And if you stand on that in 2022 in America, you're a bigot. You're un-American. You're discriminating. And it's wrong to discriminate. Did you know that sometimes you're supposed to discriminate? It's good to discriminate between a green light and a red light. Because if you can't discriminate between a green light and a red light, you're going to end up dead. Likewise, if you can't discriminate between a man and a woman and know what a man is and a woman is according to God's design, you're going to end up, as a society, dead. And we have a country that is telling us that we are un-American because we discriminate. I know that's a, a loaded word, but there are times that discrimination is good and commanded because we discriminate and order our lives on God's word. And what are they saying? You're not American. You're not kind. You're not nice. You're not this. Sign this document. Sign this diversity clause. No. I will not forsake God's design, God's good design to be accepted as American because I'm a Christian before I'm an American. It's happening in our country. And, and Paul was probably not surprised by the line of argumentation, right? Had not Jesus faced the same argument that he was a threat to Rome? Jesus says, my, my kingdom is, is not of this world. It's coming into the hearts of men. But, but Paul and Silas are, are Roman citizens, they're being accused of being anti-Roman, and they are Roman, but they haven't told anybody yet. And part of the reason that they don't tell anybody, hey, we're Romans too, is, get this, they don't want Christianity to be embraced as just another way of being Roman. They would rather be beaten and imprisoned for being a Christian than to present a Christianity that is not perceived as a big deal. Because it is a big deal. It overspreads and overtakes all other allegiances. So the argument that traditions and heritage and national identity are being upended is not a new one, but it is one that is a crowd swayer. Do you see that? Suddenly the crowd jumps in. They don't even apparently know about the girl who's been free, but they jumped in to attacking Paul and Silas who are stripped and beaten with rods. In verse 23, after many blows, they are thrown in prison where the jailer is ordered to guard them securely. He puts them in the innermost prison, and then he puts their feet in stocks. Do you know what stocks are? These like massive wooden blocks with holes that fasten around your ankles and then are fastened to the walls. Excruciating pain. They've been beaten. They've been beaten, and by the way, this is not a Jewish beating that's limited to 39 wax. They'll just keep going after you. They've been beaten and bloodied and taken to the innermost prison cell, feet locked in stocks to a wall, no way to get comfortable at all. That's where they are. God had opened a door in Philippi, and Satan tried to shut down the gospel, first by co-opting it, and when he couldn't co-opt it, he tried to cancel it by suggesting the gospel was too, too strange, too uncivilized, too unpatriotic, too much of a change for people to embrace, and they did it by trying to make an example of Paul and Silas. Church, there are open doors in this community all around us. And Satan's attempts to co-opt and cancel the gospel shouldn't surprise us. It's the same old bag of tricks. 
And when he pulls out the same old bag of tricks, we need to remember this. God wins. God wins. Let's keep reading verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them, and suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then they brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. This might seem elementary, but I think it's important for us to remember that when God opens a door, we can expect God to overcome the enemy and fulfill his saving work. Peter and Silas are not, excuse me, Paul and Silas are not going to languish in prison. Do you remember when Peter was last in prison, what he was doing? He was asleep. God came and brought him out. And now we see Paul and Silas in prison. What are they doing? They're praying and singing hymns to God. I, these guys blow my mind. I mean, they've just been beaten to a pulp. They can't get comfortable in the innermost cell, and they just start praying and singing hymns to God. In verse 25, what happens? The prisoners listen. From the innermost prison cell, the gospel goes out. From the least likely place, the gospel still goes out. Can you imagine what the inmates must have been thinking? Who is this God to whom they sing so confidently with bloodied backs and feet locked in stocks? And suddenly, verse 26, God sends an earthquake. It's an earthquake that shakes the foundation of the prison, opens all the prison's doors, and loosens the shackles and stocks, binding the hands and feet of every prisoner. This is not your typical earthquake, is it? You ever seen an earthquake do this? I mean, earthquakes destroy, but instead this earthquake sets free. It, it opens prison's doors. It opens the shackles and the chains that bind the prisoners. These prisoners were blessed to be in prison with the right guys. I mean, if you ever get thrown into prison, get thrown into prison with Paul and Silas, right? That, what, is the, what is the deal with this earthquake? It is signifying that Paul and Silas are men who know the God who sets people free from captivity. Not just physical captivity, but captivity to sin and death. So these prisoners, all of them have the opportunity to be set free. And what do they do? They check out, right? They escape and they celebrate. They're like, we'll see ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. No, that's not what they do. What do they do? They stay. They don't flee. They stay to set the jailer free. But the jailer doesn't know that. And he's about to take his own life rather than face the shame and the penalty that comes to those who fail to secure an entire prison. So Paul 
recognizing what's about to happen, cries out with a loud voice to save him. The lights are about to come on for the jailer spiritually. But before they come on spiritually, what does he do? He calls for the lights to come on in the prison, and he falls down before Paul and Silas, trembling with fear. Why is he trembling with fear? It's all coming together in his mind and his heart. He's understanding that there is a God to whom he's accountable. There's a God who's greater than all the forces of Rome, that he is accountable to this God of whom they have been singing and to whom they have been praying. And it's, it's all right there. And he's like, I'm not saved. I don't know this God. And he asked the question that was asked at Pentecost after Peter's sermon, and it's asked right now in the jail, what must I do to be saved? It's a great question. If you don't know this God who made everything, who can even open prison doors, I I hope today that you would begin to ask the question, what must I do to be saved? And look at the answer in verse 31. It's it's so simple. It's believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus you say, well, well, I do believe in Jesus. Well, it's, it's more than just in your brain, right? It's not just believing the facts about Jesus. Biblically, belief means to entrust ourselves to something. Because even the demons believe intellectually. Saving faith is to entrust ourselves to Jesus It's to find our identity in Jesus. It's not to entrust ourselves to our career, our vocation, or any other thing that we are called. It is to entrust ourselves wholly and totally to Jesus. To find our life and hope and meaning and purpose and direction and soul satisfaction. No longer in living for me and my fleshly desires, but for the glory of the one who gave his life for me. Entrust yourself today, they say to the jailer. Entrust your dreams and ambitions and priorities and eternity to the Lord Jesus. If you don't know the Lord Jesus, in just a moment we're going to sing a song. And I would encourage you, no matter where you are, that you would come and you would say, I want to entrust myself to Jesus. We want to walk alongside of you in that. We want to be your family. Paul and Silas have better news than just that the jailer can be saved, by the way. What does is, what is they go on to say in verse 32? Your whole family can be saved. Anybody who hears the word of the Lord and believes can be saved. We, we see the fruit of salvation immediately in the jailer's life. What does he do? He washes the wounds of Paul and Silas. That hit me this week. That's a picture of repentance. He was just doing his job, but in a moment, he regrets being any part of their pain. And he attends to their wounds. Church, in a sense, when we repent of our sins, we are washing the wounds of our Savior who was beaten and crucified for our salvation. You say, how great a mystery that God came down and took on human flesh to bear my sin. What could I ever do to repay Him? Well, you can't ever repay Him, but you can repent of your sin. And in repenting of your sin, it's like washing the wounds of the one who gave His life for you. Is there a sin that you're hanging on to, a sin pattern that you're living out that you just need to be free of and you're you're embarrassed by it? Well, maybe you'd be encouraged to know this. When you do it, it's like washing the wounds of the Savior who gave his life to secure your salvation. 
He doesn't stop at washing their wounds. He and his whole household hear the gospel. They're baptized. They recognize their complete dependence upon the one who was crucified to cancel their sin. And the jailer feeds Paul and Silas. And he and his whole household rejoice because he had believed on God. That's a good reason. That's good reason to rejoice. God opened a door. Satan tried to shut it. But by verse 35, what do we see? What do we have by verse 35? We have a wealthy businesswoman in her household. We have a slave girl and a middle class laborer in his household who are all charter members of the First Baptist Church of Macedonia. How do I know it was a Baptist church? Because they practice believer's baptism, just like you're supposed to. That was, that was a joke. Nobody laughed, but... Do you see who God brought together in this first church on European soil? Stott puts it this way, racially, socially, and psychologically, they were worlds apart. Yet all three were changed by the same gospel and welcomed into the same church. Same gospel, changed all different kinds of people, put them in the same church. That's the kind of church I want to be. It's the kind of church we're becoming, red, yellow, black, and white, rich, poor, and in between, demon-possessed and owning all kinds of possessions and selling purple dyes to royalty. It doesn't matter where you came from. We need the same gospel because we all need the same Jesus. But the story is not quite complete. There's still the issue of the unjust treatment of Paul and Silas to be dealt with. The issue of the governing officials who have overstepped their God-ordained boundaries. So let's keep reading down through verse 40. But when it was day... The magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, meaning without due process, without a trial. Men who are Roman citizens and they have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Last point. We can expect God to vindicate His people and should, when possible, confront ignorant and unjust attacks on the church. You say, where in the New Testament do you see people fighting for religious freedom, religious liberty? Right here. Paul is working for the freedom and the good of the church. Between verse 40, 34 and 35, Paul and Silas apparently returned to prison, Right? They apparently go back in their cell, likely to make sure that their jailer didn't get in any trouble, but it seems that the magistrates know something is up, so they send the police, probably the same guys who had beaten Paul and Silas the day before, to announce that they are free to go. And what does the jailer think? He's like, this is great. You guys get to leave. Come on out. Go in peace. But what does Paul say in verse 37? Now, this is my paraphrase. Wait just a second hold on here. They weren't right to beat us up and throw us in prison. 
So we're not just going to walk out like, like the, that was justified. You might think it's okay to beat a couple of missionaries to a pulp and make us out to be menaces to society with no, no trial or due process of law, but it's not. And oh, by the way, we are Roman citizens. Checkmate! So you want to know who the lawbreakers are? It's you, not us. You just beat us, Roman citizens, without due process. You're in big trouble. So just as publicly as you beat us yesterday, how about you come down here yourselves and publicly you take us out of this prison? Does that that make sense? You see what's going on? And then sure enough, the police came and they apologized. That's that's really not a good translation. They didn't apologize. They they tried to appease them, like, please don't file charges against us because we didn't realize you were Romans. And they took him out, and they asked him to leave the city. Suddenly, church, the tables are turned. Did you know that, that the Lord God can turn the tables just that fast? Suddenly, the earthly powers know that they are dealing with a power that is greater than their own. Suddenly, they've got to recognize that they are the lawbreakers. Now, we've got to understand, church, sometimes the vindication that we need, that we desire for working for the Lord, doesn't come in this lifetime. We recognize that many will be martyred for the faith. Many have been martyred for the faith. Churches are often wrongly suppressed around the world, and ultimately, vindication comes in eternity when our King returns. However, for as long as we live in a context where we have an opportunity to help our government to stay in its lane, we should. Paul is the, is the one who writes Romans 13, that we submit to our governing authorities. But what is he doing right now? He's showing the government that they have a lane that is ordained by God that they are to stay in, and both are true. We submit to our government, but when our government gets out of its lane, we help our government get back in its lane. This this is making sense. This is important. In this context, Paul leverages his Roman citizenship not to protect himself, but to help put the church on solid ground in Philippi after they leave. Bible scholars have often asked, why didn't Paul tell these people that he was a Roman citizen before he, you know, got beaten up? Why doesn't he do that? He doesn't initially announce that he and Silas are Roman citizens because these proud Romans are going to have to lay down the God that they've made out of their earthly citizenship to become citizens of heaven. Paul does not want to risk suggesting that the Christian movement is a pro-Rome religious movement. The only banner that Paul has come to raise up in Philippi is the banner of Christ himself. He is our banner. He is gathering a people for himself in Philippi, get this, that would include Roman citizens and non-Roman citizens alike. So if he puts his Roman citizenship at the front end of his persecution, what would happen? Then Christians who are Roman get protected, but non-Christians don't. So he delays announcing that he's Roman so that the whole church would be understood that they are not a threat and that they all deserve to be protected. He wants the church in Philippi to include those protected by the Roman flag and those who are are not protected by the Roman flag as well. So Paul leverages the advantages of his earthly citizenship to help the church. 
we should leverage the privileges of our American citizenship to help the church. He wants the church, which is a heavenly family, not to be defined by national borders or customs, but to be defined by their heavenly citizenship. He is willing to suffer so that the people of God will not be seen as a threat and will be free to follow Jesus supremely without threat of government interference or persecution. And in verse 40, Paul models this freedom, doesn't he? He's been told to leave town, but where does Paul go? First place he goes is to Lydia's house to encourage this new kingdom community, a community which has more power and more authority and more freedom than any Roman colony ever could because it is a community created by and for the glory of King Jesus. North Roanoke Baptist Church, I'm here to announce to you today that the Roman Empire is dead. But the kingdom of God is forever. God is still opening doors all around us. Some will attack us. Satan will try to stop us. But God, perhaps in this lifetime and definitely in eternity, will vindicate us. So what's our job? Let's start walking through open doors, speaking the gospel, and leaving the rest to our almighty King. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, we thank you that you open doors that you open prison doors, that you open the doors of stony hearts that needed to hear the gospel and repent and believe. And God, like that Philippian jailer, I know and believe that there are some in this room who need to entrust themselves to the Lord Jesus. God, they need to stop making lords out of other things, gods out of other things, and they just need to turn from sin and flesh and self and trust in Christ and worship Him freely. Lord, I pray for anyone today that needs to do that, that you would give them the liberty in this place, that you would open their heart to repent, believe, and become a child of God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.